Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. I'm just going to put this down a little bit because I'm just like a little fella, right? Um, so just before I start, just a couple of things. I just want to thank, on behalf of me and Stephen, I just want to thank um, people who've looked after us since we've been here. We came on Saturday. We leave uh, on a very early flight tomorrow morning, so this is our last night here. And we've had a cracking time. Um, we've been and seen some of the estates with some people. We shared the gospel last night with a, a group of people. Um, we've obviously spoken at some stuff. We shared our testimonies um, here, and uh, you're giving us an opportunity to, to talk about 20 schemes in a minute, and we're just so grateful. People have been really hospitable to us, um, and we're thankful to like people like Leslie and yeah, even King Tom down there. Tom is a bit of a lad, isn't he, Tom? He is, um, he is hardcore, so he's kept me on time. He's now looking at me with those eyes of his, the sort of stop speaking eyes and get on with it. But if Tom ever, if you ever lose your job, Tom, you will definitely make a brilliant prison warder. That is, could be a cheeky late career for you there. So we're really grateful for you watching out for us. Another thing is, and I shouldn't do this, well, maybe I should do this, and I'm going to do it. What's the worst that could happen? Um, when I was going through the, the, the mission village thing, is that what it's called? The world village? Pretty cool, by the way. Um, I came across um, a stand by the, the Good Seed guys um, and uh, found this book called uh, By This Name. Um, hands up if you've heard of this book, By This Name. Wow. Um, hands up if you've heard of a book called Stranger on the Road to Emmaus. Wow. Well... Uh, at my testimony, when I talked about I was converted through reading a Matthew Henry commentary on Saturday, believe it or not, um, from the streets, uh, I was discipled uh, by, with a book called um, Stranger on the Road to Emmaus. By, by this name is the, the updated version. It is a brilliant book. It is a brilliant book that helped a guy like me who never read a Bible to understand what the Bible is all about. How is the gospel how is the Old Testament pointing us to Jesus, and how does it lead us to the gospel? That book, uh, alongside the Bible, more than any other, gave me the foundation, a serious biblical foundation in my life that's continued today. I can't believe you don't know that book. You need to get yourselves as quick as you can round to that village hall thing, and sorry, mission village. I know. I bet somebody. I bet there was a committee that came up with that, and I've forgotten it. Um, and get yourself to the Good Seed Stand and get a hold of a copy of this book. They've got a children's version called The Lamb. I took my girls through it. It's absolute, It's gold. They've got great visual um, stuff that is going along with it. So I didn't mean to give them a plug, but I'll give them a plug because they just mean so much to me in my life. And I've used their material in Brazil with street kids. And we use it uh, every single day in, uh, in our church in Nidri. So get a hold of this bad boy. You can play the video now. Thanks. Twenty schemes exist to build healthy gospel-centred churches in at least twenty of Scotland's schemes. But what is a scheme? A scheme is the Scottish term for a council estate, 
which is made up of houses built and run by local councils to provide uncrowded, well-built homes at reasonable rents for people on low incomes. In America, they'd be like a cross between the projects, an American Indian reservation and a trailer park. Their history dates back to the 1800s. With a growing population, there's always been problems with housing and it's the poorest in our society that suffer as a result. Back then, nearly all housing was built and owned privately. Poor people would be charged more rent than they could afford by greedy landlords to live in cramped and unhygienic inner city slums, often with a whole family sharing just one small room. While Britain fought in two world wars, house building virtually stopped. So when the wars were over, there was a huge shortage of housing. After World War I, the British government tried with limited success through several acts of parliament to solve the housing problem by putting money into building new homes. But the demand for housing far outweighed the private sector's ability to produce good quality, affordable housing on a mass scale. Over the years, inner city slums were demolished and people were relocated and rehoused, usually to the outskirts of the town and city centres. This didn't really affect the wealthy and powerful, but it was a real struggle for the working class. At the time, people were happy with the idea of getting a newer house, but were worried about leaving their home, with its sense of community and security among existing family and neighbourhood networks, and where they could easily walk to work. Moving people from the slums to the schemes destroyed existing communities, created a sense of isolation, and placed greater pressure on the family budget because of increased travel costs. On the plus side, they were, for the most part, moved to larger, cleaner, more comfortable homes. Many finally escaped the clutches of tyrannical private landlords and were treated more fairly with the opportunity to have their complaints heard and acted upon by the local authority or council. Around the 1960s, councils demolished their stock of old, terraced houses and replaced them with high-rise flats. In fact, they became a central feature in most of the UK's council estates and schemes. Again, the result was people left lonely and isolated in these buildings, despite living in better conditions. Prior to World War I, 1% of the population lived in council houses, and by 1938 that figure had risen to 10%. By the late 1970s that figure had risen to 50%. For nearly all of the 20th century, housing schemes have been the responsibility of central and local government. Schemes used to be places of respectability and pride for the working class man and his family, with perfectly trimmed lawns and net curtains hanging from the windows. Unfortunately, problems soon became apparent as urban blight set in and many of these places were left to decay and rot over a period of decades. Abandoned buildings became a feature. Schemes began to be marked by rising crime, violence, the explosion of the drug scene, gang culture and a lack of economic stimulation. This led many empty properties to become squats in which to buy, sell and take drugs. These days there are a variety of people living in schemes. They're the working class who work hard to provide for their families, often holding down two or more jobs and struggling with credit and increasing debt. We also have the benefits class who've been on social security handouts for generations. Even when they do work, they still claim benefits because it's seen as giving it to the establishment. For them it's all about entitlement. Why bother working when the state will give them money anyway? Hand in hand with modern redevelopment, we have an influx of middle class young professionals trying to get on the property ladder as schemes are the cheapest place to buy a house. Then we have immigrants flooding in from around the world, met with suspicion and derided for taking our jobs, usually by people who haven't got a job, don't want a job or wouldn't even consider doing most of the jobs that these people are doing. These new groups bring with them their own worldview, often not understanding what it is to join a tight-knit scheme community where families have lived for generations. All of this is fed by a culture of medication that's commonplace and a criminal underbelly that deals in street drugs, prescribed medication and stolen goods as a matter of course. Far too many people are ruled by fear, control, and the ideal of not being a grass. 
So today the Scottish Government calculates how deprived an area is by ranking it in seven major areas. Firstly, current income, then employment, health, education skills and training, geographic access to services, housing and crime. And Scotland's housing schemes are usually rock bottom within these parameters. In Glasgow, for instance, there are more than 100 areas which we would designate housing schemes or areas that fall into the list of urban deprivation. Schemes then are a real mixture of people. Opinions on them differ depending on your life history and experience of them. To some they're places of horror, to some places of terror, to some places of hopelessness, but to many millions more, they're simply home. However, in the midst of all this poverty and deprivation, there's a far more serious problem facing Scotland's housing schemes. Research undertaken in 2011 has revealed that out of the top 50 most deprived housing schemes in Scotland, more than half of them have no gospel witness whatsoever. The greatest problem facing Scotland's schemes right now is sin. The greatest need for Scotland's schemes is to hear the gospel loud and clear. Scotland's housing schemes need local churches that faithfully proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. At 20 Schemes, we desire to see the housing schemes of Scotland transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ through the revitalisation and planting of gospel-preaching churches, ultimately led by a future generation of indigenous church leaders. So to that end, we've started a church-planting revitalisation effort by recruiting, training, supporting and sending church planters, female outreach workers, ministry apprentices and short-term interns to work as part of a planting team within Scotland's housing schemes. We believe that building healthy gospel preaching churches in Scotland's poorest communities will bring true, sustainable and long-term renewal to many of these areas. Find out how you can support us at www.20schemes.com Thanks. That's an old video. Do I look orange in that video? I must have gone for a spray tan or something. Um, basically, that's 20 schemes, but I've got to fill another 25 minutes. So I'll do my best. We even made some slides to make it look good. Okay, I've been told don't look behind. Uh, so, 20 schemes, as I've already said, 20 schemes is uh, actually a ministry of uh, my, uh, the church that I pastor in Edinburgh, Nidri Community Church. Um, there are five of us in eldership, three of us are full-time. I'm the full-time elder in resp responsible for 20 schemes and the development of uh, church planting and revitalization out of our church. Um, I have other responsibilities, but just so you understand that, we do that in partnership with a church uh, in America that was planted in a similar community in Kentucky by uh, a Scottish pastor. And as I said on the video, our, our ultimate aim is to build... Uh, healthy gospel-centered churches in Scotland's uh, poorest uh, communities. We ultimately are trying to raise up a new generation of indigenous uh, church leaders. Now, as I, I mentioned it briefly on the video, but I'll mention it again. People often say to me, what makes a scheme a scheme? Ex explain what that means. What makes an, an estate an estate? How do you know if, a, if an area falls into scheme definition? And so scheme, a scheme in Scotland can have a population of anywhere from 2,000 to 20,000 people. And you are designated a scheme um, uh, 
largely um, through the um, Scottish um, Urban um, Deprivation Index uh, in the seven areas which I thought I had on my PowerPoint. We will see. I'm such a professional, right? Um, see, Rory bought the smooth. I'm bringing a bit of the rough just to keep it real tonight, okay? Um, and basically, if an area falls below the national standard average for employment, health, education, access to services, life expectancy, or crime, or the state of their housing, they're designated to fall into um, scheme uh, designation. And so um, there are hundreds of these areas in Scotland. We reckon at least 40% of the Scottish population would live in a housing scheme. We reckon UK is probably 50% of the UK. I'm not sure, council or state-wise, what the figures would be for Northern Ireland, but I imagine it's significant um, given the amount of conversations that um, I've had this week. And so if you look at Edinburgh, for instance, this is um, my city. The, the, the blue areas indicate areas where uh, you know, the communities are above the norm in those, second, in those uh, seven factors. The red areas indicate, the redder an area it is, the more uh, deprived according to those seven factors. And just for information's purposes, that there is my scheme. That, that is Nidri. And if you look all around the city, almost in a circle, are the schemes that were, were historically poverty tenements were in the city centres after the Industrial Revolution. The poor were pushed to the outskirts. And so um, tens of thousands of people in Edinburgh live in housing schemes. And very few of those areas would have anywhere near a gospel-centred church. Now, Edinburgh's pretty rough, um, and we did a, a survey was done recently of... Um, I'm looking at that now. That looks like a swastika, right? Um, that's not cool, is it? Um, that is a bit creepy, isn't it, Tom? Tom's staring at me again. Okay. Um, so we did a survey. Um, <laughs> we did a survey of Edinburgh and of all the churches in Edinburgh, and basically we wanted to work out where did people, where were the pockets in our city where people had very little access or no access to the gospel or a gospel church. So the redder an area is, the least access they had to a gospel community. So if you look at the swastikery thing. If you look at the really dark red places, they're almost in a circle around the city. So again, it's the schemes. We always come back to the schemes. Few churches, fewest resources in terms of church planting. So Edinburgh, um, I think some of my figures, the figures right now is Edinburgh, Scotland has just dropped below 2% evangelical, placing it on the unreached people nation map. And 0.5% of those 2% would call themselves evangelicals and maybe several hundred of them out of a population of millions would be Christians in housing schemes. The situation is dire. This is Glasgow. 
So every red area you see on that map is a scheme. And uh, 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 the pink areas are getting redder, almost without exception. There are, there are small pockets, but almost without um, exception. Um, there is no gospel witness in those communities, or there are, just, or there are, or there are dying congregations or aging people in old gospel mission halls. And people ask me about 20 schemes and say, you know, can you do 20 schemes? There are 97 schemes just in Glasgow. So I could do 20 schemes five times over um, just in that city. Now, there's lots of work uh, going on in a lot of these cities. There's lots of good uh, relief. There's lots of... um, uh, parachurch work going on there's lots of youth clubs there's lots of children's breakfast clubs but at 20 schemes we believe that the answer the real answer to resolving particularly the issue of spiritual need is to grow revitalize or plant healthy churches um, our, peop- our people need to grow in uh, healthy gospel communities uh, and Ephesians 3.10, Paul reminds the church, doesn't he, that God, his intent, that's God's, was that now through the church that his manifold wisdom would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. The local church, we always say at 20 Schemes, the best mercy ministry is a healthy local church that is reaching um, its people. And so uh, uh, for us, the gospel is the answer, the church is the answer, much more than coming in and doing good deeds, much more than handouts, much more than youth projects and kind intentions. Our communities need uh, vital living churches that are living to the glory of God and being salt and light in our communities and not just dropping in every now and then to do some good stuff. Uh, and, you know, when I first went to my, the church in our scheme, and it was a struggling small congregation, um, by the time I'd got there, they hadn't seen a convert for decades, and their windows were being smashed, mem- the people's cars were being set on fire, uh, members were being assaulted in the street. I mean, it was brutal when I got there, and we had no real influence in the community. But, you know, with hard work and uh, dedication in the last seven years, our church has regained a lot of ground, lost by decades of uh, neglect. We've now become again the hub of our community. So even the local doctor surgeries will refer all their hardcore addicts to us, people suffering from depression, elderly who can't get out and feel isolated because they're living in fear. These um, would um, be referred to us and, and the, I remember meeting with the directors of the doctor surgery two lesbians a gay guy and some sort of weird Marxist militant dude with sort of you know piercings in his eyebrows or something and uh, I remember them saying to us we don't, we don't like what you stand for we don't agree with what you stand for but something is happening in our community people are coming off methadone and they seem to be talking about this church. And so, can, you, can we refer people to you? And I said, of course you can. And obviously shared the gospel with them. 
Um, we've been the subject of a BBC documentary, BBC Alba, um, about the work that our church is doing. Um, we have a great friendship with the Justice Ministry in Scotland who give us free flats in some of these rundown uh, flats. They just say, come and use them, these community flats that never get used. And um, again, he said to me very clearly, I'm an atheist, but you seem to be doing something and you're doing more than we atheists are doing. So you take it. So we took it. We gave him the gospel. Um, basically, if you breathe near us, you're getting Jesus. Um, local counsellors. We, we, when I first went to the church, there was maybe two people who lived in Nidri. There's now probably well over 60 of us in seven years. It doesn't sound like a lot, but trust me, that is a huge Increase, and we sit on lots of committees, lots of uh, community arts uh, projects. Uh, we get referrals from the police, prison service ring us up, social services uh, ring us up. Um, and we, are, we are a church with only 70 members, and maybe about 80 to 100 in attendance on a Sunday. But thanks to Jesus, thanks to the transformative power of the gospel, we are seeing scores of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And instead of robbing their communities, beating their girlfriends and wives and ignoring their children, they are putting back into their communities, they are treating their women with respect, and they're being proper mothers and fathers to their children the way God designed them to be, all for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so the idea is this. It's not a big vision, really. It's a little vision. I want to see 20 gospel churches like ours spring up in Scottish housing schemes in the next decade. I don't want big numbers. We'll do it with, if I could have 40 or 50 believers smashing it for Jesus, we could do some serious damage to um, the landscape in Scotland right now. I need lots of chat about, let's reach the power brokers and the influencers and that's good if that's your gig but when I read the Bible God uses the foolish things clowns like me um, to shame the wise and I think God's going to do it he's doing a real work and I think he's going to do an amazing work uh, in the next few years um, even when we launched the idea a couple of years ago I was waiting for phone calls from my rate pastors going you know how dare you we're doing amazing work here nothing came Within six months of our launch, we had already had 20 applications from dying congregations saying, will you help us? And every single day, new people, new churches, people who've been burrowing away in ministry for years without any resources or funding are coming to us, are rallying around us and saying, can you help us? Can you train us? Can you equip us for this ministry? So I'm really excited so apart from me chatting, how are we going to do it? Well, we're going to do it like this. Um, we're going to identify 20 schemes as priority areas. People often say to me, so if you've got a map then, you know, with your top 20, no. I actually wanted to call it 50 schemes, but my more conservative leadership taught me off the ledge. So I, that's what conservative leaders do. So I've gone for 20, but we are, with a sneaky little, we'll get the other 30 in there. Um, but so yeah so we, we're gonna we don't have 20 schemes in mind we are just 
operating as the Lord leads us. Um, and uh, 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 we'll talk about a couple in a minute. And as um, people come to us, as young people come to us for training, what we're finding is the, the Lord's opening up opportunity as well. It's not like we're going to run out of schemes. Here's the other thing. There's no serious competition. No one's queuing up going, oh, you're stepping on my toes. You know, I want to send out people to plant among Scotland's nut jobs, right? People want to plant in nice areas, university areas, or, you know, in a, uh, city centre areas. They're good areas, but... Uh, across the church planting globe right now, our demographic is seriously being missed out, and it, we are trying to address that. So we're going to identify them as they come along. Where, where possible, 20 Schemes is a church revitalization movement, and what I mean by that is I would rather work to help existing churches who are struggling in areas um, find gospel workers, find renewal, and reinvest in those communities. And I want to do that because culturally, we, as I explained on Saturday, uh, people still are very, very religious in council estates and housing schemes. Uh, they, have, um, they know what the church is like. Things like house church and cool church and, I don't know, funky slipper church or whatever posh people call these churches today. You know, giving it a cool name is pretty useless, right? I just want to get that out there. Um, you haven't got Jesus, you know, call it what you like. Um, I, I'm getting distracted by my blurb, but um, we want to revitalize because my, my scheme is 200 years old. And there's been a gospel witness, a mission hall there for 128 years. And I remember when I... And when, and, uh, when I say I'm the pastor of the mission, when I first moved in, everybody knew. They didn't go, but it gave me kudos, you understand? And I've seen guys try and plant house churches, home churches, meeting uh, community centers and stuff in schemes now who fail because they look like cults to our guys who generally um, put the church in place of a building so we want to revitalize but we will we are planting we will plant if we have to um so we're going to we're, we're, we're looking to, for partners to do that we're recruiting planters female outreach workers and ministry apprentices so we are attracting a lot of interest from young men and women in their 20s and 30s who ordinarily if they've got a heart for the poor you join a parachurch organization, you join an organization that is working in poor communities. But we're saying, come and join a local church, and we will train you, equip you, and send you out to do local church-based um, gospel ministry. And we literally have applications from all around the world, and we um, every year... Uh, this year as well, it grows every year as we try and find placements for these people. Um, and we want to develop church partners to support and resource our work. That's posh speak for we need your cash. So, you know, get your card, whatever, your credit card. If you've got a gold card, just shove it in the envelope. Tick 20 schemes, we'll look after it. Um, we're looking for uh, money, and we'll get to it in a minute for why, to resource and do it. This, this, this costs money. You know, church planting in a, in a more respectable area, generally church planting, uh, church planters, and, and I'm in my seventh, 16th year of it, 
Generally, when you're church planting and you're looking for money, you put together a sort of three to five year budget plan. Give me some money. By the fifth year, we'll be financially sort of autonomous. That's generally the westernized way of doing it, this, the business model. We need a lot of your money and we need it for a long time. And it may not work. So we might as well be upfront about that. Um, it's long, hard slog, very high cost, and very little immediate return. But I believe, again, the Lord is doing a work, and um, he's going to continue to do that. But we need to raise money. And one of the big things we want to do is invest in indigenous leaders. I came up through the streets, homelessness, prison, drug addiction, soup kitchens, to be a pastor. I've said this before, most of my friends are dead and not a lot of my family members. And um, I know very few pastors or people in full-time ministry from my background in these areas. And then I'm being asked, why do you think we're not reaching these areas? Because we've not invested in indigenous leadership. And that's one of the big areas for you. I'm going to, in just a quick video of... Um, one of our indigenous leaders, um, Natasha. Is that all right? Up until I was six, um, my mother uh, was a drug addict and at the time her boyfriend was also a drug user and he was very violent and abusive um, towards the family. But, um, when we moved to Edinburgh, um, that all changed. We were in a child-friendly rehab, so that was really good for us, and we just continued to live in Edinburgh afterwards. My life was happy when we moved to Edinburgh. Like it was, it was normal for me. I enjoyed going to school. Um, I had friends. Family life was just kind of normal. There was nothing extraordinary or. It was just quite a normal family home. When I got to about 12, um, I was diagnosed with depression and um, by the age of 13, I was binge drinking with my friends. Um, it was just something we'd done. There was nothing else much for us to do. We would just go down to an old park or whatever and that continued right up until my late teens, early 20s. I was very unhappy by this point, just with life in general, and really quite hated the world. Um, then I started coming along to church. Um, I think secretly it was because I actually wanted to see what made these people happy, what they seemed to have it together, like life together. So I thought I'd go along. Um, I attended the church for about a year on and off, um, just coming along to Sunday services pretend I wasn't listening but I really was like I always would blame God when things were going wrong but it was always blaming a God that I didn't believe in and then last Easter um, Mez was talking about um, Jesus on the cross and the thieves and that moment I realised that, that there must be a God and that I've, I was interested in learning more about him that was the first time ever God had really came into my life at all so all of a sudden throughout my days I was always like Questions were always coming into my head, like, what if there is a God, and what happens if really Jesus did come to die for me? And I was, like, a, quite confused by it all, because I was just, I didn't understand why someone would, like, send their own son to die for people. 
and people like me. And But all of a sudden it was just like always playing on my mind and I was just like, well, if the only way to heaven is through Jesus, then like I didn't want to go to hell. I was frightened by the fact that I could go to hell. And that was the moment then I decided that I was want to live my life as a Christian and uh, follow Jesus and that he was my saviour. And um, the first, it was straight away I didn't feel much like different I just thought I was all happy and I was like oh yeah I'm a Christian now and you know things were like things are going to be great and then when I told my family and friends they were really like oh the church has brainwashed you and most of my friends some of them are all right majority of them don't really speak to me much now and um, they've kind of parted ways they think I think I'm better than them now because I've joined the church and um, they think I've like I look down at them now where it's not like that at all. I've found the local church um, like, really helpful to me. Like, I probably wouldn't have went near a church uh, before um, Nidri and just meeting the people there and realising they are actually like us and they're not strange or weird middle-class people, but they're just people who can have a normal conversation with and they're, like, they're willing to help and not look down at you or patronise you or anything like that. And when I first became a Christian, they heavily invested a lot of time and um, were really patient with me when I was like texting them lots of questions and asking what about this and what about that they were just really they'd done it in my pace and when I was struggling to understand anything or like just get anything they were always there ready to explain just knowing there's people behind you that if you you do fall then they're there to to catch it and teach you from that lesson so you don't make it again. Right now I feel like I'm, I've still got a lot to learn and I will continue to learn for a long time but I'd like to think I would still be in Nidri for another couple of years learning as much as I can and we have many kids that have no church background whatsoever in Nidri and then surrounding areas um, so I'm quite, quite certain this is where God wants me and Nidri is where I am right now and I think it's where I'll be in the next few years. So that young lady is our um, youth and children's worker right now. Three years ago she never read a Bible and um, we uh, have spent a lot of time investing in her and in others like her. I think we're currently training about 50 people full-time for ministry in, uh, in the schemes. So right now we're just concentrating on four areas. My own church in Nidri is a scheme next to us called Grace Mount, a scheme in Dundee called Lockheed, and a scheme in the east end of uh, Glasgow called Balanic. Uh, my time is running out. Do I just keep going for a few minutes? I'm going tomorrow. What can you do to me anyway, Tom? <laughs> I, think, I think I can take you. Um, so I'm going to keep going. I'm not going to. I'm not going to be an hour, but two minutes. So we've got three priority areas. Please pray for. Please pray for Grace Mount. Uh, if you go onto our website, twentyschemes.com, all these things are there. There's a lot of information. There's the planting group that we have uh, got there. Andy Prime may be known to some people here. His granddad was Derek Prime, who was the pastor of Charlotte Chapel. Uh, he was the assistant pastor of Charlotte Chapel, but I told him it was a dead end job. 
come and work with deadbeats instead. And he took us up on it. Good lad. Um, and then we've got uh, Pete Stewart and Pete Bell and their families. They're joining us. I've just joined us a few weeks ago, planting in uh, the east end of Glasgow. We And um, Pete, are you out here somewhere? There you go. So you're a local boy, right? Where are you from? All right. So there's a planter who needs cash. <laughs> He's local. Is that good enough, bud? Right. See him. Big hairy bearded one. See him after. Uh, and then Lockheed's in Dundee, where we've got another um, young, two young couples who've just moved uh, into the area, and we're planting a church there. That church building has been given to us. That was a Baptist church that shut its door 20 years ago. And that is in a community of 20,000 people with no witness. But you know what? It's got a witness now, baby. Um, and so, we, uh, 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 this is my end. We are growing indigenous leaders like Tasha and others. Uh, of the money we raise, we have what we call our indigenous fund. And that is ring-fenced for guys like Stephen, for Tasha, for the countless others you've not met tonight. 20 Schemes Vimeo. If you want to be encouraged, you'll see testimony after testimony of young men and women being transformed. We want to give them access to funding for training. Uh, even with my own credentials in ministry a long time, I have failed for, uh, for every, uh, every Christian foundation I've asked for funding for in my 20 years. And we have people who've got long criminal records, don't look like Christian-y workers. And we, we're saying this has got to stop. We, we want to try and raise money to fund you to be equipped for work and mission in the kingdom of God. Mission is just not a middle-class pastime, is it? As our brother was saying, you know, we are few and far between. Um, and we need to get more people out there. And we are developing training and resources and supporting, and I'm hoping to come back soon uh, to support some of the uh, churches here who want to get serious about council estate ministry in Northern Ireland. So pray for us, give to us, and you can come and see the work that we do. We offer internships for young and old. We've just recruited three women in their 50s. We desperately need older, godly women to teach some of these young women the scriptures and what it means to be a godly woman so we're not just a young trendy thing so pray give come you've been cracking i've loved it thanks very much we trust you've enjoyed this podcast if you'd like to make a donation to support the work of bangor worldwide please visit www.worldwidemission.org donate